celebrate the second Sunday in Advent. The light from the Advent wreath grows bigger as we move closer to Christmas and the celebration of the coming of Jesus. Last week, we lit the prophet's candle as we remembered those who first spoke the promise of the coming Christ child. This week, we light the Bethlehem candle, the candle of preparation. This candle reminds us of those who prepared the way for the Lord and that we may also prepare our hearts for the coming of Christ. From Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Comfort, O comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let us pray. Dear God, by the power of your spirit, move us to make the preparations needed to welcome Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Soften our hearts, break down our resistance, open us anew to your life and love that we may be transformed and healed and may be agents of transformation and healing in the lives of others. We pray in the name of the one for whom we make preparations, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to come with us and among us. And I'm asking, dear Lord, that the Holy Spirit give each one of us ears for that which we need to hear today. We are all on this journey together, and we are coming from different places with different needs, but we all need you. So we're asking, dear Lord, for your favor to fall upon us and the fullness to be here. And I pray most earnestly that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together would be acceptable to you. For you are our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. There has been this pastor in the news a lot lately. His name is Rick Warren. He's the pastor of a huge megachurch in Southern California. Have you heard him in his many interviews? And he wrote a bestseller that a couple of years ago, and now he is addressing issues and solutions to obesity in America. So he kind of caught my attention, and I was listening to him, and I found him to be very, very likable. There's something about him that is appealing. He was easy. He didn't take himself too seriously, and he had humor, and yet he wasn't shallow. He was true to his faith. He talked about pain he had had in his own life. He just had a light touch. And I thought, you know, this is something about this is so current America right now. There are important ways, these kinds of ways that our culture expects our religious leaders to be. Don't be off-putting. 
try to bring a little levity into the situation. And I remember hearing so many things from my mentors as I was preparing for ministry. And one of them was my own father, who's been doing this for 50 years. They say, if you're going to be honest about the word, the word of God, there will be times when people don't exactly welcome the message. Scripture can be a bit hard to hear at times. But in those cases, make it possible to be as pleasant as possible or you will drive the people away. And I thought, you know what? That's really underselling the people. I believe that the general view of the people in the pews is they want their souls to be fed. There was a time when the message really was not massaged. There was this breakthrough guy in the 1700s that introduced a certain type of evangelism that maybe we are still reacting to and we could even be recovering from him in some ways. A sea change happened forever. An American approach to Christianity was developed. And you don't know how American our Christianity is until you go elsewhere and see, oh, we don't all have the same approach to this. But he brought revival. He brought this need for personal conviction to the fore. He emphasized conversion and people crowded in, in mass to hear Jonathan Edwards' sermons. You ever hear of him? One of his sermons? And you might think, oh, he might be great. No, he wasn't. Listen to what the titles of his sermons were. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And then there's one that was God's awful judgment in the breaking and withering of the strong rods of community. That was Jonathan Edwards. Hellfire. Damnation. He was honoring his patch of history. His approach was needed to jolt the people awake. And arguably, he was a forerunner, a distant forerunner, but a forerunner to Billy Graham, who added to the message, oh, yeah, God does love you. And, oh, yes, there is a gospel, and the gospel is good news, and you need to know it, so go to the Bible. But Jonathan Edwards, and this is what we need to know, actually did, even in his anger, he was used by God. You have to sift through a lot of the stuff, but he was used by God. He was angry, but he was not as utterly humorless and peculiar as John the Baptist. He was the one who paved the way for the ministry of Jesus. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea. He was single-minded undistracted, John the Baptist proclaimed. He proclaimed from a hostile physical environment, not beautiful desert, but monochromatic, devoid of beauty, barren and scraggly wilderness. No one would choose to go there. It wasn't a destination location. He proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. This isn't a message people generally hope for or expect. Repent meaning turn away from sin. Whatever separates you, distances you, us, from God, turn away from that 
and turn toward him with your whole heart. What we tend to do in life is to find ways to justify the existence that we have chosen. Psychological evidence exists that people would rather cling to the familiar, even if the familiar is miserable, than turn away from it. The voices pointing to God had been silenced. There had been no prophetic activity for 400 years when John's wilderness message erupted from his soul. That much of a lead-in, that much quiet before the voice came. Talk about gestalt. Talk about figure ground erupting from the wilderness after 400 years of silence was the real thing. The real thing. The real thing. It was prophecy, but it was much, much more than prophecy. It was fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The voice of one cries out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And the man, John himself, his appearance was very, very odd. He wore clothing of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts. And there's so much written about what these locusts really were. But some people say they were high in minerals and vitamins. So he was a healthy guy. And he ate wild honey. His appearance was without appeal. His surroundings inhospitable. His message harsh, abrasive, repent, turn away from sin. And that's the easy part. As you read more of what he had to say, there was a lot. But it's the next verses that contain wonderment. They flocked to him. They flocked to him. Is there something going on out there? It's like there's this. Can you pray with me a second? Because this is so important. And the distractions, I just feel that they're there and nobody's meaning to do it. But let's pray. Lord, there is nothing more important than repentance. Absolutely nothing. It's the prelude to whatever it is that we need to connect with you. It's the prelude for movement of the spirit. It is what we need. And it's where we need to go. So please help us. To hear not what I am saying, but what you want us to hear. And I ask this in Jesus' name. The next verses are what cause wonderment. This guy had this message that nobody ostensibly wanted to hear. And the people flocked to him. The people couldn't get enough of him. They were drawn to him like a magnet. The people of Jerusalem and all of Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were drawn to him and his message included other difficult points. And this difficult point is something that we do not want to hear in this culture. But one of his points was, your heritage means nothing. The Jews got by on their heritage. They knew that they were the offspring of Abraham and Abraham's promise. 
we are chosen, they knew this. But heritage is also a big deal with us. I remember when I was training to be uh, preparing for uh, to be a psychotherapist that we had to write this paper called Differentiating from Your Family Ego Mass. And the paper was so freeing because I realized that, yes, we all have families, but we are all autonomous human beings if we work at it and think of ourselves in those ways. And it was a very, very important point in my own spiritual journey to be able to write this. And I remember going to a relative and saying, isn't it thrilling that being in Nepstead isn't that important, that we're no better or no closer to anyone else? She didn't talk to me for 10 years. <laughs> That's the truth. And someone told me after the service, you know, our family loves to do things like exploreancestry.com and to get involved in that way. And I said, well, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking the actual belief that because of your relatives, you are closer to God and better positioned to hear God. That's what John the Baptist was addressing the heritage means nothing concerning our status with God. It doesn't matter if we are descendants of Abraham. You work things out yourself. Personal repentance. There is no transference of spiritual capital based on what our ancestors did for and with God. Certain Jews love being Jews, just like Certain Americans love being Americans. I remember how we all were after 9-11. We love being Americans. But John greeted the greatest revelers in Jewish heritage with the words, and these were the Pharisees and Sadducees, you brood of vipers. So why did the people come in droves to hear this? You've got to change your ways and your heart by turning away from everything sinful, including over-identification with ancestors. Because they knew, they knew that John spoke for God. They knew God was in it. God spoke through him. There was some bit of the truth that they could actually absorb and bring into their hearts. People know the Holy Spirit convicts us and touches us. And that environment was raw. And so was John. Somehow God set the scene for the Holy Spirit to convict the people of their sin, and it's not a scene we could ever come up with in a million years. We couldn't orchestrate it. We couldn't plan it. He set this scene at that place. One of the roles and functions of the Holy Spirit is to convict us that it is time to turn to God so that our yearning for God, which also comes from the Holy Spirit, can know fulfillment, the vastness, the weight, the power of God's grace, and love is received and known in the turning. It's not what we think. We can think about it the rest of our life. It's what we know. It's when that conviction in the Holy Spirit touches our hearts. And in the turning, that's where the laughter, the joy, the forgiveness and the rest of the story comes in. The people came in droves 
The repentance was so real that an outward symbol of the inward reality was sealed in baptism in the Jordan and at this table. Let us pray. Lord, come to us and be with us and allow us to hear and know the truth about who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.